in Luke chapter 11, verse 14 and through 16, it says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. Luke has been laying out evidence over and over that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that the Jews were anticipating ever since they were kids. They were raised with that anticipation that the Messiah would come, and they were waiting for him as part of their culture. It was part of their family. It was their background, their upbringing. It was just part of their life. They were all waiting for the Messiah. And the law and the prophets and the Old Testament all were pointing to the Redeemer, the Savior that would come. And for the first nine chapters of Luke, he has been focusing on Jesus' Galilean ministry. Jesus is ministering up north in, in Galilee. And in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke tells us, and this is a pivot, and as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He started to go south towards the cross where he would die in Jerusalem. And so Jesus began to head south. He sent out the 70 ahead of him out into all the place, proclaiming, getting people ready as he was going. And as the message was being proclaimed by Jesus' apostles and his disciples, and by Jesus, they were preaching the message of the kingdom of God. And as that message was being proclaimed, people began to realize that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He was the king of the kingdom of God. Jesus was overthrowing Satan's kingdom. And it was evident as he just was walking through cities and the demonic oppression that was overwhelming people in sickness and demon possession and all these types of things. Not that all sickness is demon possession. We're not getting on that this morning. But that's what he was dealing with. He was walking in and he was overthrowing the kingdom of God. He was tossing out demons where no one else could do that. He was healing people. He was bringing the kingdom of God. How many of you long for that? Amen. And no doubt the message of the kingdom is that people must repent from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They must turn from evil and receive Christ as their Savior, believe, be saved, and be transformed by a work of grace in the heart of a human being who was once rebellious towards God. And Jesus was delivering people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And no doubt, as he's going, the message is repent, turn, which is a very gracious message, isn't it? If you have the authority and you have the ability to execute your enemies on command because they've rebelled against you and yet you decide to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide a way for you to not only be uh, pardoned, but totally forgiven and made part of the family. I mean, what grace is that? as the king himself is coming through his creation. So there is that message of repentance that we see so clearly in, these, in the gospel message, the turn from sin, the turn toward God's, but it was also accompanied and demonstrated 
by a demonstration of, of, of the Messiah's authority and power that God's kingdom had over Satan. So Jesus had this authority and a power to not only to back up what he was saying. And so as he was going, uh, the signs and, and the miracles and things were evidences that he actually could do what he claimed to do. And so Jesus' authority over the manifestations of the demonic influence over Satan's kingdom was one of the signs that Jesus pointed to John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist is in prison. I mean, he knew that he was... John himself said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But as things got tough and things didn't work out the way he planned, and he was in jail, and Jesus was elevated, even though he said, I must decrease, he must increase. It was still difficult, but his faith began to waver. And he sent disciples, uh, his disciples, to Jesus and said, hey, go ask him, are you the one or should we ask for another? And back in Luke 7, verse 20 through 30, it says, when the men came back, they said to John, uh, the, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one or should we expect someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. And so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and what you heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It's me, amen, according to the scriptures. And so Luke has been compiling this evidence. He's just been building it up that we wouldn't have a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. No one has done these things like this. The power and authority that he has to overthrow the kingdom of Satan. And this evidence is just overwhelming. And people are being delivered from satanic, satanic, demonic possession as it is manifested in its various forms. And so in verse 14 of our text today, it says that Jesus was driving at a demon that was mute. And that means this demon had the ability to, when it possessed a person, to make it to where they were no longer able to speak. And the word in there in Greek means it could be that it made them deaf, which made them not able to speak. Because when you can't hear, you can't enunciate things. And so the word... It's one way or the other. But regardless, this man was under the control of a demon. And Jesus cast the demon out, and the man began to speak, and people were amazed. I mean, if, you, if, you, if we were awakened to the fact of demonic possession, we don't see a lot of it around here, but more so overseas and things have, have been exposed to more weirder things like that. But... Um, when someone is possessed by a demon, we see in Scripture so often um, things like blindness are happening to them, their inability to speak, self-harming is going on, people running around cutting themselves, um, lunacy, types of things like that. We see a lot of those manifestations in Scripture. And I understand you know, the debate, what is medical, what is this or that, um, I don't think they were going to doctors at the time, you know, and trying to figure out, you know, what's, why does he keep throwing himself into the fire? I mean, they just knew that this was, this was a spiritual situation. And Jesus had the ability to discern what was going on, no matter what was going on, whether it's demonic or physical, and he was able to look at the situation and say, get out of them. And I love it when Jesus, Jesus has such authority. It wasn't a, 
you know, a, a 20 minute or a 15 time visit. He just spoke and it happened and it's done. Amen? And that's, what I, that's how I believe God works. He has power and authority over the enemy. And we see that, and everybody's amazed because this just not, does not happen. What authority that he has. <clears throat> it says, but some of them said, in verse 15, by Bilzebul, sorry, Bilzebul, I used to have a, um, a printer in the church office called the Business Hub, and we'd call it the, the Bilzy Hub, but because um, all the satanic forces were focused on, on Sunday morning. But by Bilzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign for heaven. What we see here is that although the evidence has been overwhelming, that Jesus was indeed their Messiah. That was overwhelming. We see Jesus, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, the rejection is crescendoing, and it's going to crescendo into the cross. There's word, there's rejection, there's astonishment that's going on, but there's a, a subtle, a percolating just no, no, no. And, and this is kind of the subtext of what's going on, but here Jesus is being accused of casting out the demons because uh, he is the prince of demons, they were saying. Now, if you're a student of the word, you immediately think of the similar story in Matthew 12 and Mark 3, where they said that the same thing, uh, and then Jesus goes on to speak of the unforgivable sin. Um, now, I don't believe the account in Luke is the same as the account in Matthew 12 and Mark 3. I don't want to get too deeply into that, but the ones that were in uh, Matthew 12 and Mark 3 were in Galilee. This is in Judea. So two different circumstances, similar things that happen on, similar responses that Jesus gave. And so although Luke doesn't record it, this isn't the first time that Jesus was being accused of casting out demons by demons. This isn't the first time. And by the way, uh, uh, the Lord of dung is what it means. To cast out demons by the Lord of dung. Now, where in the world is all this coming from? Why are people suddenly saying this to Jesus? Matthew 12, 24 says that it began with the Pharisees, where they said back in Galilee, it's only by Bilzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So the Pharisees are starting a character assassination plan on Jesus Christ to disseminate, they're disseminating these lies about Jesus to discredit him. Their power is being affected and disrupted. Their kingdom, their rule, their authority is being messed up by the kingdom of God. And as the Lord comes in, the king of righteousness, of holiness, of goodness, is, is coming in, their evil is being exposed, and they attack back with lies. You ever watched, uh, you know, cable news? Uh, ever watched MSNBC, Fox News, whatever it is? I mean, something happens in the media, and boom! All of a sudden, you got all these pundits on there from different people being called in. They're all saying the same thing. How in the world are they all saying the same thing? Because whichever party was offended, they put talking points together and they disseminate it to all their people, put it on, on the programs, and they're all saying the same thing so that we, the sheeples, sit there and listen to it and go, oh yeah, that must be true. You know, they want to blow up the world. Maybe. I don't, you know, but I'm just saying, 
these, these, this, they just assassinate. And the people just start grabbing onto things because they have an information void. And so, as Jesus is walking around, they start, some of them started to say, hey, you're casting that out by, uh, by another demon. That's what you're doing there. Well, where is this coming from? It started with the Pharisees, the political powers that be that were being affected, were being overthrown by Jesus' rule, by the kingdom. Same thing's happening to Jesus. We see the people repeating it in the Gospels over and over. For example, John 7, 20, at the festival in Jerusalem, the people called Jesus demon-possessed. And as that discussion progresses in John 8, 47 through 48, Jesus says, whoever belongs to God, here's what I say. The reason you do not hear uh, is that you do not belong to God. Jesus didn't mince words. And the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? Now, remember what we've learned about Samaritans? The Jews did not like the Samaritans at all. And so if you do not like someone, you are going to tell them they're the exact opposite of what you are. You know, you're a racist. <laughs> Just flat out, no matter what, you know, you are the, you hate us. You're a Samaritan. He just throws it right out there. Without even, so the, the, the political people there are giving them this, this nugget to start to assassinate Jesus' beautiful, holy character with. Then John 10, another example, 19 to 20, same thing. The Jews who had heard his words again were divided. Many of them said he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Not only is he demon-possessed, he's insane. But others said these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind? And so some people were reasoning with what was going on. But the Pharisees were the ones who were disseminating these lies. And after all the evidence that has been presented that Jesus was who he was, they saw the power, they saw the miracles, the message according to the scriptures, and then turn around and they tell the people that Jesus was unholy, he was demonic, he was sinful, when he was actually the most righteous, most holy Son of God, God in the flesh. And that was the total rejection of Jesus Christ their Savior, and they were leading the people in that rejection to their own eternal damnation. Thus, the discussion about the unpardonable sin. I think context is, is, is there. And so as Jesus is headed towards the cross, the hostility is getting overwhelming at Jesus. How do you respond when people assassinate your character? Besides saying, okay, 90% of that's true. <laughs> If they only knew the real truth. <laughs> no, but I mean, how do you respond? Anybody got Facebook? I want to turn that thing off. Nothing good comes from Facebook. <laughs> Can't comment on anything without World War III starting. But how do you respond? Jesus responds with something called mercy. Isn't that, aren't you thankful? that Jesus is merciful? When How many of you before you knew Christ said horrible things about God and Christ and all this stuff and you blasphemed? And how merciful He was to us that He didn't just drop us dead on the spot. But He spoke to us and He wooed us and He gave us people in our lives who loved us and told us the truth. And as we wrestled with that truth, maybe we became angry or whatever it might have was, and eventually He got us. 
I'm thankful for that. But it says in verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's giving them some reason. He's helping them think through their points. Any of you had a position that just didn't make sense after it got like a little, someone started pecking away at it? And you're like, oh yeah, that doesn't make sense. That was dumb. I've had a couple of those. But Jesus makes a plain statement. Satan is not going to cast out Satan. His kingdom won't stand if that is what is happening. Your logic is messed up. It's not going to happen. He's not destroying himself. He's not fighting against himself. That's, that's ridiculous. So Jesus points out, look, listen to what you're saying. It doesn't make sense. And if I'm driving out demons by Satan, then who are your followers casting them out by? We're both casting out demons. So we're all with Satan, casting out things against Satan. They're going to be your judge. He goes, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, guess, guess what? By the power of God. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You are on the wrong team. If I am casting out demons because Satan's not going to cast out Satan, only God casts out demons, then what team am I on? What team are you on? You're on the wrong team. You've got it all wrong. And that was Jesus' point. You're the actual ones influenced by Satan because you're not only rejecting the Messiah, you're influencing your father to reject him by the lies you spread. You're on his side. Now Jesus gives an illustration about his power and authority over the kingdom of Satan. Verse 21 says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. How many of you are strong men and you guard your own house and you're well-armed? In Walla Walla, a lot of people say, yeah. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor which the man trusted in and divides up his plunder. That's what war is about. Jesus is saying he is the strong man. Jesus just walked into that guy's house where Satan was armored up and Jesus just kicked them out. Amen. Jesus is the strong man. I love that. He overpowers Satan. He attacks Satan. That's what Jesus is doing, walking around, owning it. I love it. And Jesus, by proclaiming the kingdom with power, evidenced in casting out of demons, was showing that he is that stronger man. He is the Messiah. He is the King, the Son of God, Israel's deliverer. And then Jesus warns them, whoever is not with me, in verse 23, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus just put all of humanity into two categories. Did you see that? Jesus just put all of humanity into two categories. Everybody in this room is in one of two categories, according to Jesus. You are either with him or you are against him. 
You are with Him or against Him. There is no middle ground. That's a scary thought. That's how Jesus sees it. I know that in this postmodern world, everybody can have you know, 50 different categories. Jesus is not like that. He is very straightforward, black and white on this issue. You either are mine or you are not. This means that if you're impartial about Jesus, Jesus says you're against him. If you don't have an opinion about Jesus, you're against him. If you're a good person doing good things and you don't give a rip about Christ, you're against him. You know that. If you strap a bomb on yourself and go blow up people in the name of Allah, you're against Christ as well. I mean, whatever gamut you want to do. To the innocent, good person who did everything all their life straight and good uh, and yet rejects Christ, they're against Christ. Because the most innocent of us, according to our standards, is totally in rebellion against the Holy God. Total depravity. And those who are honest with ourselves say, that's true. I might live a good moral life, but that does never mash up to the sinless perfection that God requires through the law. I cannot keep it, and I feel the weight of it. I need a Savior. Amen? If you're not with him, you're against him. You see, these people from the leaders to the people were, were moral people. These people were moral people. How many of you are moral people? You actually believe in right and wrong, good and evil. You kind of obey laws, you pay your taxes, you go to church, you do all those things. They're moral people. They were religious people. Very religious people. They prayed. They went to church. They did their sacrifices. They did all the things that they were supposed to do. Synagogue, obviously. But they were against him. And as Jesus is casting out this demon, they were amazed, but some were saying he was doing it by the power of Satan. And they were taunting him. Give us a sign. This was not, not like, hey, I want more information. This was taunting. Give us a sign which Jesus addresses in a few verses about Jonah, which we'll get to later. But the point is that many were against Christ. And it's not enough to be amazed, brothers and sisters, enemies of Christ, perhaps in this room. It's not enough to be amazed. It's not enough to be moral. It's not enough to just be reformed. They had to be regenerated and transformed. And Jesus is seeking to give them insight into their hearts and give them a story in light of the exorcism that just happened, even though he just delivered someone, he's bringing the kingdom forward. They say you're doing it by Satan. He's going to bring it back around and say, look at what I'm doing. Where's your heart? And so he gives this story about being regenerated, basically, in verse 24. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking, to re- seeking rest, and it does not find it. It doesn't say why or how, but a demon leaves a person and wanders in the spirit realm. And demons by nature don't do well in that situation because they operate with and in people. That's how they operate. That's their nature. That's what they want to do. They operate with and in people. 
Then it says, I will return to the house I left. This is what the demon is saying. The house being a person. I will return to that person. Left, it's wandering around and it comes back. When it arrives, it finds the house swept and cleaned and put in order. So the demon leaves and he comes back because a demon does not like to be a fish out of water. Demons do work in and through people and that is what they do. And so it comes back, and it finds that this person has their life in order. Perhaps this person was living a sinful life and a hard, rebellious life, and it just made it very comfortable for demonic activity in their life. We don't know. Maybe they were engaged in, in just like in, in stuff that was just ungodly, and it was like, for the demon, like, a, like mud for a pig. It was at home. Demons are at home in that stuff. And for whatever reason, the demon leaves. And perhaps because this person got tired of living the life they were living uh, and they tried to morally correct themselves and pick themselves up by their bootstraps and, and started to go to AA and started getting religion and all this stuff and they just started to, to, to reconstruct their life by sheer will. Anybody else? I'm tired of doing this. I'm going to grab this self-help book and we're going to go do it. And they started cleaning up the house. They got their stuff in order. They started becoming moral again. Or perhaps they were afraid that if they kept on doing what they were doing, they were going to get sick and die or you know, grab some disease or something. Whatever the reason, their life was cleaned up. Things were in order. They were reformed. Any of you reformed in here, but they were not transformed. They were not transformed. They were not regenerated. They were not born again by the Spirit of God who indwells the believer. They were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They had an outward thing going on, like the Pharisees, but the inward thing was not a reality. Believers cannot be demon-possessed, oppressed, yes, but possessed, no, because the Holy Spirit dwells in the heart and the life of a believer. But if you sneak a peek ahead, Jesus is at lunch with one of the Pharisees and says to them, because they are moral and against Christ, did you know it's impossible to be moral and to be absolutely against Christ? But the Pharisee, verse 38, was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, ceremonially washing. And the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside are full of greed and wickedness. So that's a great lunch date there. Jesus straightforward. Verse 40, You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint. You rule all other kinds of garden herbs, and you, but you neglect the justice and love of God. You're moral in that you do everything by the book. You make sure you write that 10%. You make sure you do whatever it might be on those, you know, according to God's standard. But guess what? They neglected the poor. They neglected the justice and the love of God. That's a hard issue, friends. He says, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. 
You see, both. God is both. God is moral, but He's also love, which is, seems like a contradiction, but it's not. He is inside and outside. The inside changes the outside. And so there's this outward reformation, the rules, but no true relationship with God. And so this spirit comes back and finds this person's life in order. Perhaps you've experienced this before. You've picked yourself up. You started, you've changed things, but it only lasts for a little while before things start to fall back into what they were again. Not only what they were again, but worse. Have any of you known anybody like that? Have you experienced that in your own life? The Spirit comes back and He finds this person's life in order. They pulled themselves up and they straightened themselves, but one problem. When the Spirit comes back, verse 25, when it arrives, it finds the house swept and clean, put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. I guess there are, more spirits, there are evil spirits that are more wicked than other spirits. Did you know that? They're not just like all vanilla evil spirits. They've got 31 flavors of evil spirits. There's a lot of evil spirits out there, some more powerful than others. Perhaps this is what happened to the man who was running around naked, cutting himself, who was possessed by legion, if we read about that. You're wondering how that happened. Well, Jesus gives us insight. They got there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Satan is a strong man too. Did you know that? And morality is not going to deter him. It's not going to stop him. It's not going to be like, oh no, you tithed. Oh no, you went to church. Oh no, you walked people across the street. Oh no, all these things. This is not going to work. He operates well in religion. He's quite comfortable in religion. He's the author of everyone except for Christianity. And original Judaism, obviously. But Reformation will not work. A person must be transformed by, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to have Christ in you. Then the strong man has no, has no jurisdiction because you are possessed by the Holy Spirit. The King of kings and the Lord of lords lives within you. And when a person is convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit, they must believe upon Jesus' death, that He paid the price for their sins against God, and must believe that Jesus was raised on the third day, so that just as our old lives of sin were paid for, so now we have new life, because now Christ lives us lives in us. That's what the gospel is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians 1.13, closing pretty soon here, and says, and you, will, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, you believed, you were marked with Him, the seal of the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise and glory of God. The reason why a Christian is a Christian is because they have believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And proof of that belief is that the Holy Spirit now indwells you and changes you from the inside out. Amen? That's Christianity. Religion is, I'm doing all these outward things. I'm morally picking myself up, not allowing Christ to live through me. It's a totally different gospel. 
You see, when you are transformed by faith in Christ, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. There are several other verses I would point you to regarding that. John 14, 17, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Romans 8, 15 through 17, and 1 Corinthians 2, 12. You can talk to me about those later. Just to name a few, there's a lot more. But the point is that morality does not deliver a person from Satan, nor does it make you right with Christ. Faith in Christ is what transforms a person. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what makes us live out the life that is pleasing to God, which is when we love and obey Jesus Christ. You see, Christ is in you, and He wants to live the way He lived. So when you run into sexual immorality, you can't live with it. You can't, because Christ is in you. He says, this is yuck, this unholy. We're not doing that anymore, and it breaks your heart, and you say, we are changing, God. I submit to you. Anyone else? How do you overcome all these things in our lives? Christ in you, submitting to the Holy Spirit, denying yourself. Just like Jesus denied himself, we deny ourselves. Not my will, but your will, O God. You see, Christianity is inside out, not from the outside in. All the other world religions are the outside in. Keep these set of rules. Do these things. Pray this many times. Go to this place. Do these things. You see, I can, I can throw those things upon you, church, and you know they're right, but unless Christ is in you, is religion. And so what happens is when I preach the word and it connects with an area of your life, the Holy Spirit's going, Do you, are you listening to me? I have no clue what's going on in your heart, in your life. None. The Lord does. And so when we're, we're preaching and the Holy Spirit connects to your heart, respond to Him. When you are alone with the Lord and you're opening up His Word and you're, you're reading and you find something that just jumps off the page in you and it addresses an area of your life, perhaps an opportunity the Lord wants to you, you step out in faith and maybe you're fearful or a relationship or a correction or an opportunity or whatever it might be, respond to the Holy Spirit. That's you and Him. That's relationship. That's Him, Christ, working in and through you. That's what true Christianity is about. You see, that is, is, is what people want to see. And that's how God works, through a changed life that lives it. So verse 27, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, we'll finish real quickly, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, it was every Jewish woman's hope to be the mother of the Messiah. I mean, that's the greatest honor. Remember I told you the cultural background there. And it was, you know, all the guys, man, said, man, I hope Messiah would be my son. That would be awesome. You know, that was, that was a cultural emphasis there. And they were greatly anticipating this. And so as Jesus is preaching, this woman was just, just calls out and says, man, your, your mother is blessed. How, look at you, you are Awesome. And no doubt, Mary is blessed among women, as Elizabeth proclaimed in, in chapter 142, amen? But now, if there's any time for Jesus to institute the worship of Mary, now is the time. He, you know, he would have gone right on, or he would have said, yes, and this is what you need to do. He would have instructed it, but what does he say? 
He says, no, rather. And I'm going, Jesus, you're so insensitive to your mom in my carnal heart, you know. He's not being disrespectful to her. He's placing honor where honor is due. And this is hard for us. Jesus often says things that seem like unless you hate your family, like he doesn't want us to hate our family, but you've got to love God more than your family. And he just uses these drastic terms for us to get it. But I think if we were to worship Mary and pray to Mary as the Catholic Church teaches, this would be the time to where that would be instituted. How many of you were raised Catholic? Yeah, you were taught to pray to Mary. That's obviously contrary to Scripture. Now, there are people who love the Lord and who are saved and absolutely are born again in the Catholic Church. I'm not saying, and by the way, there are people who love the Lord and are born again and absolutely are saved in, in Protestant churches. Did you know that? A lot of them aren't. <laughs> and because you go to a Protestant church, you go to church, you check your box, you're like, yeah, I'm good with God. Faith in Christ, what do we say? <laughs> Preach it, Right? But he doesn't give the woman an amen. Actually, almost every time we see Mary interacting with Jesus during his ministry, although she is blessed, she is just not Jesus' priority. It's strange. As I was reading this, I'm like, what in the world? Think about it with me. Remember back in Luke 2 when Joseph and Mary lost Jesus in Jerusalem? <laughs> you know, we lost the Messiah. Oh, no. But they <laughs> we're in trouble. But they find him and in verse 48. Back in Luke 2, we already went through it, but when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you, he goes, why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be about my father's house? I was in my father's house. But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Jesus was sitting at the feet of the teachers of Israel, and they were expanding the scriptures back and forth, and they were amazed at him. He was around the word of God. That's what he was prioritized around. If you think I'm just pulling this out of thin air, in, in Mark 3, 31 through 30, 34, we read, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Hey, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mothers and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Why didn't he just stop everything, get up, and go talk to his mom and show Mary the honor that she was due? Because there's a greater priority in Jesus' life. It was the Word of God, the kingdom of God. The message of the kingdom took priority. So give honor to Mary as being blessed among women is scriptural, but to elevate her place to worship when Mary herself declared that God was her Savior, that was saving her from her sin, Mary cries out to God and prays in Luke 1, beginning of verse 47. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And we focus on that part, you know, uh, you know uh, on Mary there in her Magnificat. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. And we stop there, and we don't read the next verse. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary cries out. Holy is his name. She ascribes worship to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so if you were raised to worship Mary, this is unbiblical. Jesus never taught it us to do that, nor the apostles. It's heresy. 
worship God through Jesus Christ. Don't pray to Mary. She's not answering. None of the saints are answering. You pray to the Father through Jesus as Jesus just taught us early in this chapter to pray. When you pray, pray to the Father. Amen? We, have, we don't need to go to anyone else. He is the one who, in all of our weaknesses, He understands what we went through. I know it's great to try to think of how you want to frame things with God, but God is the one who decides how things work. Is that okay? God, God, makes, God decides how things work. He actually says what is acceptable worship to Him and what is not. Do you know that? So when you worship Him in a way that He says that's not acceptable, because you feel it does not mean it's accepted. Does that make sense? Prayer. Other things as well. So we want to focus on how God says things. Not trying to be harsh or exclude, but I think part of the Bible and what we do is we want to correct false doctrine. We want to, we want to focus people back to the truth of the word and simply upon Jesus because all false religion, all false religion, all heresies, all these things that you will come and encounter with, they divert people away from the person of Jesus Christ instead of point them to. You notice that? It's all about works, or it's all about a system, or it's all about this. But what do we preach week after week here? Christ crucified, Jesus Christ. We keep putting you to, pointing you to Jesus. He's in. He's it. So all glory and honor to Him. And that's where we're going to end, on a sour note. I mean, not that He's, you know. But I don't want to focus this morning on the fact that, um, you know, Mary's bad, God is good, that type of stuff. that's not what I'm saying. God, Jesus is so merciful and he is so kind. And, and I know that's, those, those words seem light, but he is truly merciful in that I believe the Holy Spirit is, work when it, is at work when his word is proclaimed. And so I would encourage you this morning to respond. Like Jesus said, you're blessed if you hear me and you obey and so if you are convicted this morning at any point, if something jogged your memory in your heart and your mind, respond in obedience and God will be faithful to uh, do His part. Respond. Amen? Lord God, we want to thank You so much for Your Word. And we bless Your holy name, Father. Thank You so much for being present with us. Thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus, to die for our sins, but not only that, to give us new life. Lord, help us to focus on the new life you've given us in Christ as the Holy Spirit now indwells us. Now we can live. We can really live. We don't have to be this moral thing that is all outside but no inside, but Christ, now you live in us, live through us, and then we will be all that you've desired for us to be. Pleasing to the Father in every way. So if, if your heart is heavy this morning, if you're convicted, if you feel like, if you believe that what has been spoken to you, that you are living the outside in life instead of Christ in and out, Respond to him now. Raise your hand. Say, I need, I need that change. I've been living the outside in life. Lord, I need you in. And we'll pray for you.
doesn't make a difference if you're saved or not. We want to pray for one another. Outside in. Jesus says you want the inside out. Anyone need prayer? Lord bless you. I need it. Church, let's let's pray for one another just for a second. I want you guys to actually pray and, and I'll close this out. So just lift up what the Holy Spirit's put on your heart regarding what has been taught this morning. Let's focus on that as opposed to, you know, everything else that's happening in the world. And then I'll close this out. Let's go ahead and lift it up.